Maddie told Hattie about a thing she saw. Two big horns and a woolly jaw. Woolly bully. Woolly bully for you, stout yeoman. This month, this this week, this 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 season, we are being sponsored by bunnyslippers.com and their Highland Cow Wooly Bully Slippers. It doesn't say Wooly Bully on the website. It's just what I'm saying because I've had that song stuck in my head since I got these comfortable, comfortable wool slippers that I've been strolling around the studio with. Go to bunnyslippers.com. Check them out yourself. Wooly Bully. That's not their name. Highland Cow Slippers. Highland Cow Slippers. Ooh, they're so soft and they're so fuzzy. And probably the next convention that I'll be at, I'll throw a pair out in the audience for everyone. Wooly Bully Slippers from bunnyslippers.com. And you know what? I can't talk about bunnyslippers.com without talking about my super cool, greasy Tony's t-shirt. It's a three-quarter length sleeve shirt. I'm just talking about it because I love this shirt. They don't expect me to talk about it. I just love... Dressing like Booger from Revenge of the Nerds. It's, uh, I don't know. He's my, he's my Patronus, I guess one would say. All right. You know what we're talking about this week? We're not talking about anything this week. We're listening, people. We're listening. We're listening to Jules Verne. It's his, it's his birth month this month. Uh, and we're going to be covering, we're going to be talking about the Antarctic mystery. Wahaha. Yes, the Antarctic mystery where the Antarctic is more broken than my various accents that I do throughout the intro to this show. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo, spooky dookie. And, uh, hey, just something that's out there. If you are someone who likes the show and wants to help out the show, why not go to pgttcm.com and go to the donate option. Help the show. Help the show grow. Help repair the equipment. Help me help other podcasters get off the ground as I'm doing with Dave from Dave's Corner of the Universe and Zach Ferguson from Articulate Warbling. If you like either of those, why not help out the show and help them out as well? And also, I'm going to be trying to come up with a larger show, a larger format, something that I wanted People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos to be to begin with. Well, here's some Jewel for Svern and enough of me talking. Let's go. An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne Chapter 18, Part 1 A Revelation The following day, the 29th of December, at six in the morning, the schooner set sail with a northeast wind, and this time her course was due south. The two succeeding days passed wholly without incident. Neither land nor any sign of land was observed. The men on the Halbrane took great hauls of fish, to their own satisfaction and ours. It was New Year's Day, 1840, four months and seventeen days since I had left the Kerguelens, and two months and five days since the Halbrane had sailed from the Falklands. The half-breed, between whom and myself an odd kind of tacit understanding subsisted, approached the bench on which I was sitting. The captain was in his cabin, and West was not in sight, with a plain intention of conversing with me. "'The subject may easily be guessed. "'Dirk Peters,' said I, taking up the subject at once, "'do you wish that we should talk of him?' "'Him,' he murmured. "'You have remained faithful to his memory, Dirk Peters. "'Forget him, sir, never. "'He is always there before you? "'Always. "'So many dangers shared. "'That makes brothers. "'No, 
It makes a father and his son, yes, and I have seen America again. But Pym, poor Pym, he is still beyond there. Dirk Peters, I asked, have you any idea of the route which you and Arthur Pym followed in the boat after your departure from Salal Island? None, sir. Poor Pym had no longer any instrument, you know, sea machines, for looking at the sun. We could not know, except that for eight days the current pushed us towards the south, and the wind also, a fine breeze, and a fair sea, and our shirts for a sail. Yes, white linen shirts, which frightened your prisoner Nunu. Perhaps so, I did not notice. But if Pym had said so, Pym must be believed. And during those eight days you were able to supply yourselves with food? Yes, sir, and the days after, we and the savage— you know, the three turtles that were in the boat. These animals contain a store of fresh water, and their flesh is sweet, even raw. Oh, raw flesh, sir. He lowered his voice and threw a furtive glance around him. It would be impossible to describe the frightful expression of the half-breed's face as he thus recalled the terrible scenes of the Grampus. And it was not the expression of a cannibal of Australia or the New Hebrides but that of a man who is pervaded by an insurmountable horror of himself. "'Was it not on the first of March, Dirk Peters?' I asked, "'that you perceived for the first time the veil of grey vapour, "'shot with luminous and moving rays?' "'I do not remember, sir. "'But if Pym says it was so, Pym must be believed.' "'Did he never speak to you of fiery rays which fell from the sky?' "'I did not use the term.' polar aurora, lest the half-breed should not understand it. Never, sir, said Dirk Peters after some reflection. Did you not remark that the color of the sea changed, grew white like milk, and that its surface became ruffled around your boat? It may have been so, sir. I did not observe. The boat went on and on, and my head went with it. And then the fine powder, as fine as ashes that fell? I don't remember it. Was it snow? "'Snow? Yes, no. The weather was warm. What did Pym say? Pym must be believed.' He lowered his voice and continued. "'But Pym will tell you all that, sir. He knows. I do not know. He saw. And you will believe him.' "'Yes, Dirk Peters, I shall believe him.' "'We are to go in search of him, are we not?' "'I hope so.' "'After we have found William Guy and the sailors of the Jane?' "'Yes, after.' And even if we do not find them? Yes, even in that case. I think I shall induce our captain. I think he will not refuse. No, he will not refuse to bring help to a man, a man like him. And yet, I said, if William Guy and his people are living, we can admit that Arthur Pym... Living? Yes, living, cried the half-breed. By the great spirit of my father's he is. He is waiting for me, my poor Pym. How joyful he will be when he clasps his old Dirk in his arms, and I, I, when I feel him there, there. And the huge chest of the man heaved like a stormy sea. Then it went away, leaving me inexpressibly affected by the revelation of the tenderness for his unfortunate companion that lay deep in the heart of this semi-savage. In the meantime I said but little to Captain Langai, whose whole heart and soul were set on the rescue of brother, of the possibility of our finding Arthur Gordon Pym. Time enough, if in the course of this strange enterprise of ours, we succeeded in that object, 
to urge upon him one still more visionary. At length, on the 7th of January, according to Dirk Peters, who had fixed it only by the time that had expired, we arrived at the place where Nunu the savage breathed his last, lying in the bottom of the boat. On that day an observation gave 86 degrees 33 minutes for the latitude, the longitude remaining the same between the 42nd and the 43rd meridian. Here it was, according to the half-breed, that the two fugitives were parted after the collision between the boat and the floating mass of ice. But a question now arose, since the mass of ice carrying away Dirk Peters had drifted towards the north. Was this because it was subjected to the action of a counter-current? Yes, that must have been so, for our schooner had not felt the influence of the current which had guided her on leaving the Falklands for fully four days. And yet, there is nothing surprising in that, for everything is variable in the austral seas. Happily, the fresh breeze from the northeast continued to blow, and the Halbrane made progress towards higher water, thirteen degrees in advance upon Weddell's ship, and two degrees upon the Jane. As for the land, islands, or continent, which Captain Len Guy was seeking on the surface of that vast ocean, it did not appear. I was well aware that he was gradually losing confidence in our enterprise. As for me, I was possessed by the desire to rescue Arthur Pym, as well as the survivors of the Jane. And yet, how could he have survived? But then, the half-breed's fixed idea. Supposing our captain were to give the order to go back, what would Dirk Peters do? Throw himself into the sea, rather than return northwards? This it was, which made me dread some act of violence on his part, when he heard the greater number of the sailors protesting against this insensate voyage, and talking of putting the ship about, especially towards Hearn, who was stealthily inciting his comrades of the Falklands to insubordination. It was absolutely necessary not to allow discipline to decline, or discouragement to grow among the crew so that, on the 7th of January, Captain Len Guy, at my request, assembled the men and addressed them in the following words. Sailors of the Halbrane, since our departure from Salel Island, the schooner has gained two degrees southwards, and I now inform you that, conformably with the engagement signed by Mr. Jorling, $4,000, that is $2,000 for each degree, are due to you and will be paid at the end of the voyage. These words were greeted with some murmurs of satisfaction, but not with cheers, except those of Hurligurly the boatswain and Endicott the cook, which found no echo. On the 13th of January a conversation took place between the boatswain and myself of a nature to justify my anxiety concerning the temper of our crew. The men were at breakfast, with the exception of Drap and Stern. The schooner was cutting the water under a stiff breeze. I was walking between the fore and main masts, watching the great flights of birds wheeling about the ship with deafening clangor, and the petrels occasionally perching on our yards. No effort was made to catch or shoot them. It would have been useless cruelty, since their oily and stringy flesh is not eatable. At this moment Hurly-Gurly approached me, looked attentively at the birds, and said, "'I remark one thing, Mr. Jorling.' What is it, Bosun? That these birds do not fly so directly south as they did up to the present. Some of them are setting north. I have noticed the same fact. 
And I add, Mr. Jorling, that those who are below there will come back without delay. And you conclude from this? I conclude that they feel the approach of winter. Of winter? Undoubtedly. No, no, Bosun, the temperature is so high that the birds can't want to get to less cold regions so prematurely. Oh, prematurely, Mr. Jorling? Yes, Bosun, do we not know that navigators have always been able to frequent the Antarctic waters until the month of March? Not at such a latitude. Besides, there are precocious winters as well as precocious summers. The fine season this year was full two months in advance, and it is to be feared the bad season may come sooner than usual. That is very likely, I replied. After all, it does not apply to us, since our campaign will be certainly over in three weeks. If some obstacle does not arrive beforehand, Mr. Jorling, and what obstacle? For instance, a continent stretching to the south and barring our way? A continent, hurly-gurly? I should not at all be surprised. And in fact, there would be nothing surprising in it. As for the lands seen by Dirk Peters, said the boatswain, were the men of the Jane might have landed on one or another of them, I don't believe in them. Why? Because William Guy, who can only have had a small craft at his disposal, could not have got so far into these seas. I do not feel quite so sure of that. Nevertheless, Mr. Jorling, what would be so surprising in William Guy's being carried to land somewhere by the action of currents? He did not remain on board his boat for eight months, I suppose. His companions and he may have been able to land on an island, or even on a continent, and that is a sufficient motive for us to pursue our search. No doubt, but all are not of your opinion, replied Hurligurly, shaking his head. I know, said I, and that is what makes me most anxious. Is the ill-feeling increasing? I fear so, Mr. Jarling. The satisfaction of having gained several hundreds of dollars is already lessened, and the prospect of gaining a few more hundreds does not put a stop to disputes. And yet, the prize is tempting. From Zalal Island to the Pole, admitting that we might get there, is six degrees. Now, six degrees at two thousand dollars each makes twelve thousand dollars for thirty men. That is four hundred dollars a head. A nice little sum to slip into one's pocket on the return of the Halbrane. But notwithstanding, that fellow Hearn works so wickedly upon his comrades that I believe they are ready to bout ship in spite of anybody. I can believe that of the recruits, Bosun, but the old crew? Hum. There are three or four of those who are beginning to reflect, and they are not easy in their minds about the prolongation of the voyage. I fancy Captain Len Guy and his lieutenant will know how to get themselves obeyed. We shall see, Mr. Jorling, but may it not that our captain himself will get disheartened, that the sense of his responsibility will prevail, and that he will renounce his enterprise? Yes, this is what I feared, and there was no remedy on that side. As for my friend Endicott, Mr. Jorling, I answer for him as for myself. We would go to the end of the world, if the world has an end. Did the captain want to go there? True. We too, Dirk Peters and yourself, are but a few to be a law to the others. And what do you think of the half-breed? I asked. Well, our men appear to accuse him chiefly of the prolongation of the voyage. You see, Mr. Jorling, though you have a good deal to do with it, you pay and pay well. 
while this crazy fellow Dirk Peters persists in asserting that his poor Pym is still living, his poor Pym who was drowned or frozen or crushed, killed anyhow, one way or another, eleven years ago. So completely was this my own belief that I never discussed the subject with the half-breed. "'You see, Mr. Jorling,' resumed the boatswain, "'at the first, some curiosity was felt about Dirk Peters. "'Then, after he saved Martin Holt, it was interest. "'Certainly he was no more talkative than before, "'and the bear came no oftener out of his den. "'But now we know what he is, "'and no one likes him the better for that. "'At all events, it was he who induced our captain, "'by talking of land to the south of Salil Island, "'to make this voyage.' and it is owing to him that he has reached the eighty-sixth degree of latitude. That is quite true, boatswain. And so, Mr. Jorling, I am always afraid that one of these days somebody will do Peters an ill turn. Dirk Peters would defend himself, and I should pity the man who laid a finger on him. Quite so. It would not be good for anybody to be in his hands, for they could bend iron. But then, all being against him, he would be forced into the hold. Well, well, we have not yet come to that, I hope, and I count on you, Hurly-Gurly, to prevent any against Dirk Peters. Reason with your men, make them understand that we have time to return to the Falklands before the end of the fine season. Their reproaches must not be allowed to provide the captain with an excuse for turning back before the object is attained. Count on me, Mr. Jorling. I will serve you to the best of my ability. You will not repent of doing so, Hurligurly. Nothing is easier than to add a round zero to the four hundred dollars which each man is to have, if that man be something more than a sailor, even were his functions simply those of boatswain on board the Halbrain. End of chapter eighteen, part one. An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne, Chapter 18, Part 2 A Revelation Nothing important occurred on the 13th and 14th, but a fresh fall in the temperature took place. Captain Len Guy called my attention to this, pointing out the flocks of birds continuously flying north. While he was speaking to me, I felt that his last hopes were fading, and who could wonder? Of the land indicated by the half-breed nothing was seen, and we were already more than 180 miles past Salal Island. At every point of the compass was the sea, nothing but the vast sea with its desert horizon, which the sun's disk had been nearing since the 21st, and would touch on the 21st March, prior to during the six months of the Austral night. Honestly, was it possible to admit that William Guy and his five companions could have accomplished such a distance on a craft, and was there one chance in a hundred that they could ever be recovered? On the 15th of January, an observation most carefully taken gave 43 degrees 13 minutes longitude and 88 degrees 17 minutes latitude. The Halbrain was less than two degrees from the pole. Captain Len Guy did not seek to conceal the result of this observation and the sailors knew enough of nautical calculation to understand it. Besides, if the consequences had to be explained to them, were not Holt and Hardy there to do this, and Hearn to exaggerate them to the utmost? 
During the afternoon I had indubitable proof that the sealing-master had been working on the minds of the crew. The men emerging at the foot of the mainmast talked in whispers and cast evil glances at us. Two or three sailors made threatening gestures undisguisedly. Then arose such angry mutterings that West could not be deaf to them. He strode forward and called out, Silence there! The first man who speaks will have to reckon with me. Captain Len Guy was shut up in his cabin, but every moment I expected to see him come out, give one last long look around the wastes of waters, and then order the ship's course to be reversed. Nevertheless, on the next day the schooner was sailing in the same direction, unfortunately, for the circumstances had come some gravity. A mist was beginning to come down on us. I could not keep still. My apprehensions were redoubled. It was that West was only awaiting the order to change the helm. What mortal anguish the captain's must be! I understood too well that he would not give that order without hesitation. For several days past I had not seen the half-breed, or at least I had not exchanged a word with him. He was boycotted by the whole crew, with the exception of the bosun, who was careful to address him, although rarely got a word in return. Dirk Peters took not the faintest notice of this state of things. He remained completely absorbed in his own thoughts. Yet, had he heard West give the word to steer north, I know not what acts of violence he might have been driven to. He seemed to avoid me. Was this from a desire not to compromise me? On the seventeenth in the afternoon, however, Dirk Peters manifested an intention of speaking to me, and never, never could I have imagined what I was to learn in that interview. It was about half-past two, and, not feeling well, I had gone to my cabin, where the side window was open, that at the back was closed. I heard a knock at the door, and asked who was there. Dirk Peters, was the reply. You want to speak to me? Yes. I'm coming out. If you please, I should prefer. May I come into your cabin? Come in. He entered and shut the door behind him. Without rising, I signed to him to seat himself in an armchair, but he remained standing. What do you want of me, Dirk Peters? I asked at length, as he seemed unable to make up his mind to speak. I want to tell you something, because it seems that you should know it, and you only in the crew they must never know it. If it is a grave matter, and you fear any indiscretion, Dirk Peters, why do you speak to me? If I must, ah, yes, I must. It is impossible to keep it there. It weighs on me like a stone. And Dirk Peters struck his breast violently. Then he resumed. Yes, I, I am always afraid it may escape me during my sleep, and that someone will hear it, for I dream of it, and in dreaming. You dream, I replied, and of what? Of him, of him. Therefore it is that I sleep in corners, all alone, for fear that his true name should be discovered. Then it struck me that the half-breed was perhaps about to respond to an inquiry which I had not yet made, why he had gone to live at the Falklands under the name of Hunt after leaving Illinois. I put the question to him, and he replied, It is not that, no, it is not that I wish. I insist, Dirk Peters, and I desire to know in the first place for what reason did you not remain in America? For what reason you chose the Falklands? For what reason, sir? Because I wanted to get near Pym, my poor Pym, 
because I hope to find an opportunity at the Falklands of embarking on a whaling-ship bound for the southern sea. But that name of Hunt? I would not bear my own name any longer, on account of the affair of the Grampus. The half-breed was alluding to the scene of the short straw, or lot-drawing on board the American brig, when it was decided between Augustus Bernard, Arthur Pym, Jerk Peters, and Parker the sailor, that one of the four should be sacrificed, as food for the three others. I remembered the obstinate resistance of Arthur Pym, and how it was impossible for him to refuse to take the tragedy about to be performed. He says this himself, and the horrible act, whose remembrance must poison the existence of all those who had survived it. Oh, that lot-drawing, the short straws, were little splinters of wood of uneven length which Arthur held in his hand. The shortest was to designate him who should be immolated. And he speaks of the sort of involuntary, fierce desire to deceive his corn that he felt to cheat is the word he uses. But he did not cheat, and he asked pardon for having had the idea. Let us try to put ourselves in his place. He made up his mind and held out his hand, closed on the four slips. Dirk Peters drew the first. Fate favoured him. He had nothing more to fear. Arthur Pym calculated the one more chance was against him. Augustus Bernard drew in turn. Save two he. And now Arthur Pym reckoned up the exact chances Parker and himself. At that moment all the ferocity, the tiger entered into his soul. He conceived an intense and devilish hatred of his poor comrade, his fellow-man. Five minutes elapsed before Parker dared to draw. At length Arthur Pym, standing with eyes closed, not knowing whether the lot was for or against him, felt a hand seize his own. It was the hand of Dirk Peters. Arthur Pym had escaped death. And then the half-breed came upon Parker and stabbed him in the back. The frightful repast followed immediately, and words are not sufficient to convey to the mind the horror of the reality. Yes, I knew that hideous story, not a fable, as I had long believed. This was what had happened on board the Grampus on the 16th of July, 1827, and vainly did I try to understand Dirk Peters' reason for recalling it to my recollection. Well, Dirk Peters, I said, I will ask you, since you were anxious to hide your name, what it was that induced you to reveal it when the Halbrane was moored off Salal Island. Why did you not keep to the name of Hunt? Sir, understand me. There was hesitation about going further. They wanted to turn back. This was decided, and then I thought that by telling you who I was, Dirk Peters, of the Grampus, my poor Pym's companion, I should be heard. They would believe with me that he was still living. They would go in search of him. And yet it was a serious thing to do, to acknowledge that I was Dirk Peters, he who had killed Parker. But hunger, devouring hunger. Come, come, Dirk Peters, said I. You exaggerate. If the lot had fallen to you, you would have incurred the fate of Parker. You cannot be charged with a crime. Sir, would Parker's family speak of it as you do? His family? Had he then relations? Yes, and that is why Pym changed his name in the narrative. Parker's name was not Parker, it was... Arthur Pym was right, I said, interrupting him quickly. And as for me, I do not wish to know Parker's real name. Keep this secret. No, I will tell it to you. It weighs too heavily on me, and I shall be relieved, perhaps. 
when I have told you, Mr. Shoreling. No, Dirk Peters, no. His name was Holt, Ned Holt. Holt, I exclaimed, the same name as our sailing masters, who is his own brother, sir. Martin Holt? Yes, understand me, his brother. But he believes that Ned Holt perished in the wreck of the Grampus with the rest. It was not so, and if he learned that I... Just at that instant, a violent shock flung me out of my bunk. The schooner had made such a lurch to the port side that she was near foundering. I heard an angry voice cry out, "'What dog is at the helm?' It was the voice of West, and the person was Hearn. I rushed out of my cabin. "'Have you let the wheel go?' repeated West, who had seized Hearn by the collar of his jersey. "'Lieutenant, I don't know.' "'Yes, I tell you, you have let it go a little more, and—' "'The schooner would have capsized under full sail.' "'Gratian,' cried West, calling one of the sailors. "'Take the helm, and you, Hearn, go down into the hold.' On a sudden the cry of land resounded, and every eye was turned southward. End of chapter 18, part 2「An Antarctic Mystery » by Jules Verne, Chapter 19, Part 1 Land Land is the only word to be found at the beginning of the nineteenth chapter of Edgar Poe's book. I thought it would be a good idea, placing after it a note of interrogation, to put it as a heading to this portion of our narrative. Did that word, dropped from our foremasthead, indicate an island or a continent? And, whether a continent or an island, did not a disappointment await us? Could they be there, whom we had come to seek? And Arthur Pym, who was dead, unquestionably dead, in spite of Dirk Peters' assertions, had he ever set foot on this land? When the welcome word resounded on board the Jane on the 17th January, 1828, a day full of incidents according to Arthur Pym's diary, it was succeeded by land on the starboard bow. Such might have been the signal from the masthead of the Halbrane. The outline of land, lightly drawn above the skyline, were visible on this side. The land announced to the sailors of the Jane was the wild and barren Bennet Islet. Less than one degree south of it lay Salal Island, then fertile, habitable, and inhabited, and on which Captain Len Guy had hoped to meet his fellow countrymen. But what would this unknown island, five degrees further off, in the depths of the southern sea, be for our schooner? Was it the goal so ardently desired, and so earnestly sought for? Were the two brothers, William and Len Guy, to meet at this place? Would the Halbrane come there to the end of a voyage, whose success would be definitely secured by the restoration of the survivors of the Jane to their country? I repeat that I was just like the half-breed. Our aim was not merely to discover the survivors, nor was success in this matter the only success we looked for. However, since land was before our eyes, we must get nearer to it first. That cry of land caused an immediate diversion of our thoughts. I no longer dwelt upon the secret Dirk Peters had just told me, and perhaps the half-breed forgot it also, for he rushed to the bow and fixed his eyes immovably on the horizon. As for West, whom nothing could divert from his duty, he repeated his commands. Gratien came to take the helm, and Hearn was shut up in the hold. On the whole this was a just punishment, and none of the old crew protested against it, 
for Hearn's inattention awkwardness had really endangered the schooner for a short time only. Five or six of the Falkland sailors did, however, murmur a little. A sign from the mate silenced them, and they returned at once to their posts. Needless to say, Captain Len Guy, upon hearing the cry of the lookout man, had tumbled up from his cabin, and eagerly examined this land at ten or twelve miles' distance. As I have said, I was no longer thinking about the secret Dirk Peters had confided to me. Besides, so long as the secret remained between us two, and neither would betray it, there was nothing to fear. But if ever an unlucky accident were to reveal to Martin Holt that his brother's name had been changed to Parker, that the unfortunate man had not perished in the shipwreck of the Grampus, but had been sacrificed to save his companions from perishing hunger, that Dirk Peters, to whom Martin Holt himself owed his life, had killed him with his own hand, what might not happen then? This was the reason why the half-breed shrank from any expression of thanks from Martin Holt, why he avoided Martin Holt, the victim's brother. The boatswain had just struck six bells. The schooner was sailing with the caution demanded by navigation in unknown seas. There might be shoals or reefs barely hidden under the surface, on which she might run aground or be wrecked. As things stood with the Halbrane, and even admitting that she could be floated again, an accident would have rendered her return impossible before the winter set in. We had urgent need that every chance should be in our favour, and not one against us. West had given orders to shorten sail. When the boatswain had furled the top-gallant sail, the top-sail, and the royal, the Halbrane remained under her mainsail, her foresail, and her jib sufficient canvas to cover the distance that separated her from land in a few hours. Captain Len Guy immediately heaved the lead, which showed a depth of twenty fathoms. Several other soundings showed that the coast, which was very steep, was probably prolonged like a wall under the water. Nevertheless, as the bottom might happen to rise sharply instead of following the slope of the coast, we did not venture to proceed out of the sounding line in hand. The weather was still beautiful, although the sky was overcast by a mist from the southeast to southwest. Owing to this, there was some difficulty in identifying the vague outlines which stood out like a floating vapor in the sky, disappearing and then reappearing between the breaks of the mist. However, we all agreed to regard this land as from twenty-five to thirty fathoms in height, at least at its highest part. No, we would not admit that we were the victims of a dilution, and yet our uneasy minds feared that it might be so. Is it not natural, after all, for the heart to be assailed by a thousand apprehensions as we near the end of any enterprise? At this thought my mind became confused and dreamy. The halbrane seemed to be reduced to the dimensions of a small boat, lost in this boundless space, the contrary of that limitless sea of which Edgar Poe speaks where, like a living body, the ship grows larger. When we have charts, or even sailing directions, instruct us concerning the hydrography of the coasts, the nature of the landfalls, the bays and the creeks, we may sail along boldly. In every other region, the master of the ship must not defer the order to cast anchor near the shore until the morrow. But, where we were, what an amount of prudence was necessary, and yet, no manifest obstacle was before us. Moreover, we had no cause to fear that the light would fail us during the sunny night. 
At this season the sun did not set so soon under the western horizon, and its rays bathed the vast Antarctic zone in unabated light. From that day forward the ship's log recorded that the temperature fell continuously. The thermometer in the air and in the shade did not mark more than 32 degrees, 0 degrees Fahrenheit, and when plunged into the water it only indicated 26 degrees, 3.33 degrees Celsius below zero. What could be the cause of this fall, since we were at the height of the southern summer? The crew were obliged to resume their woolen clothing, which they had left off a month previously. The schooner, however, was sailing before the wind, and these first cold blasts were less keenly felt. Yet we recognized the necessity of reaching our goal as soon as possible. To linger in this region, or to expose ourselves to the danger of wintering out, would be to tempt Providence. Captain Len Guy tested the direction of the currents by heavy lead lines, and discovered that it was beginning to deviate from its former course. "'Whether it is a continent,' he said, "'that lies before us, or whether it is an island, we have at present no means of determining. If it be a continent, we must conclude that the current has an issue towards the southeast.' "'And it is quite possible,' I replied, "'that the solid part of the Antarctic region may be reduced to a mere polar mound. In any case, it is well to note any of those observations which are likely to be accurate. That is what I am doing, Mr. Jorling, and we shall bring back a mass of information about this portion of the southern sea, which will prove useful to navigators. If ever any venture to come so far south, Captain, we have penetrated so far, thanks to the help of particular circumstances, the earliness of the summer season, an abnormal temperature, and a rapid thaw. Such conditions may only occur once in twenty or fifty years. Wherefore, Mr. Jorling, I thank Providence for this, and hope revives in me to some extent. As the weather has been constantly fine, what is there to make it impossible for my brother and my fellow countrymen to have landed on this coast, whither the wind and the tide bore them? What our schooner has done, their boat may have done. They surely did not start on a voyage which might be prolonged to an indefinite time without a proper supply of provisions. Why should they not have found the resources as those afforded to them by the island of Salal during many long years? They had ammunition and arms elsewhere. Fish abound in these waters, waterfowl also. Oh yes, my heart is full of hope, and I wish I were a few hours older." Without being quite so sanguine as Langai, I was glad to see he had regained his hopeful mood. Perhaps his investigations were successful. I might be able to have them continued in Arthur Pym's interest, even into the heart of this strange land which we were approaching. The Halbrane was going along slowly on these clear waters, which swarmed with fish, belonging to the same species as we had already met. The seabirds were more numerous, and were evidently not frightened, for they kept flying around the mast, or perching in the yards. Several whitish ropes, about five or six feet long, were brought on board. They were chaplets formed of millions of shellfish. Whales, spouting jets of feathery water from their blowholes, appeared at a distance, and I remarked that all of them took a southerly direction. There was therefore reason to believe that the sea extended far and wide in that direction. The schooner covered two or three miles of her course without any increase of speed, 
This coast, evidently, stretched from northwest to southeast. Nevertheless, the telescopes revealed no distinctive features, even after three hours' navigation. The crew, gathered together on the forecastle, were looking on without revealing their impressions. West, after going aloft to the forecross trees, where he had remained ten minutes, had reported nothing precise. Stationed at the port side, leaning my elbows on the bulwarks, I closely watched the skyline, broken only towards the east. At this moment the boatswain rejoined me, and without preface said, "'Will you allow me to give you my opinion, Mr. Jorling?' "'Give it, boatswain," I replied, "'at the risk of my not adopting it, if I don't agree with it.' "'It is correct, and according as we get nearer, one must really be blind not to adopt it.' And what idea have you got? That this is not land which lies before us, Mr. Jorling. What is it you are saying? Look attentively, putting one finger before your eyes. Look there, out at starboard. I did as Hurley-Gurley directed. Do you see? He began again. May I lose my liking for my grog if these heights do not change place, not with regard to the schooner, but with regard to themselves. And what do you conclude from this? that they are moving icebergs. Icebergs? Sure enough, Mr. Jorling. Was not the boatswain mistaken? Were we in for a disappointment? Were there only drifting ice mountains in the distance instead of ashore? Presently there was no doubt on the subject. For some time past the crew had no longer believed the existence of land in that direction. Ten minutes afterwards the man in the crow's nest announced that several icebergs were coming northwest in an oblique direction, into the course of the Halbrane. This news produced great sensation on board. Our last hope was suddenly extinguished, and what a blow to Captain Len Guy. We should have to seek land of the austral zone under higher latitudes, without being sure of ever coming across it. And then the cry, Back ship! Back ship! sounded almost unanimously on board the Halbrane. Yes, indeed, the recruits from the Falklands, demanding that we should turn back, although Hearn was not there to fan the flame of insubordination, and I must acknowledge that the greater part of the old tars seemed to agree with them. West awaited his chief's orders, not daring to impose silence. Gretchen was at the helm, ready to give a turn to the wheel, whilst his comrades, with their hands on the cleats, were preparing to ease off the sheets. Dirk Peters remained immovable, leaning against the foremast, his head down, his body bent, and his mouth set firm. Not a word passed his lips. But now he turned towards me, and what a look of mingled wrath and entreaty he gave me. I don't know what irresistible motive induced me to interfere personally, and once again to protest. A final argument had just crossed my mind, an argument whose weight could not be disputed. So I began to speak, and I did so with such conviction that none tried to interrupt me. The substance of what I said was as follows. No, all hope must not be abandoned. Land cannot be far off. The icebergs which formed in the open sea by the accumulation of ice are not before us. These icebergs must have broken off from the solid base of a continent or an island. Now, since the thaw begins at this season of the year, the drift will only last a short time. Behind them we must meet the coast on which they were formed. In another twenty-four hours, or forty-eight at the most, if the land does not appear, Captain Len Guy will steer to the north again. 
Had I convinced the crew, or ought I, to take advantage of Hearn's absence, and of the fact that he could not communicate with them, to make them understand that they were being deceived, and to repeat to them that it would endanger the schooner if our course were now to be reversed? The boatswain came to my help, and in a good-humoured voice exclaimed, "'Very well reasoned, and for my part I accept Mr. Jorling's opinion. Assuredly, land is near. If we seek it beyond those icebergs, we shall discover it without much hard work or great danger. What is one degree further south, when it is a question of putting a hundred additional dollars into one's pocket? And let us not forget that if they are acceptable when they go in, they are none the less so when they come out.' Upon this, Endicott, the cook, came to the aid of his friend, the boatswain. "'Yes, very good things indeed are dollars,' he cried, showing two rows of shining white teeth. Did the crew intend to yield to Hurley-Gurley's argument, or would they try to resist if the Halbrane went on in the direction of the icebergs? Captain Len Guy took up his telescope again, and turned it upon these moving masses. He observed them with much attention, and cried out in a loud voice, "'Steer south-south-west!' West gave the orders to execute the manoeuvres. The sailor hesitated an instant, then recalled to obedience. They began to brace the yards and slack the sheets, and the schooner increased her speed. When the operation was over, I went up to Hurley-Gurley, and drawing him aside, I said, "'Thank you, Boson. "'Ah, Mr. Jorling,' he replied, shaking his head, "'it is all very fine for this time.' but you must not do it again. Everyone would turn against me, even Endicott, perhaps. I have urged nothing, which is not at least probable, I answered sharply. I don't deny that fact, Mr. Jorling. Yes, Hurley-Gurley, yes, I believe what I have said, and I have no doubt, but that we shall really see land beyond the icebergs. Just possible, Mr. Jorling, quite possible. But it must appear before two days, or on the word of a boatswain, nothing can prevent us from putting about. End of chapter 19, part 1Thank you again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I have been your host, D.B. Spitzer. Remember, you can help out the show by going to pgttcm.com. Follow the show notes and follow the show on social media. Uh, find us anywhere you catch your pods at your podcatchers. And, yeah, we're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Just look for us there. And look for us wherever you look for podcasts. Thank you again. Donate money. Help out the show. Buy a t-shirt. Send us a, you know, contact us. Get in touch. All right. Thank you again and have a great day.